excuse me, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. <clears throat> well, we've all been there at some point. You're sitting there in a restaurant trying to mind your own business, or you're at a coffee shop, uh, you're at Back Alley, and you are minding your own business, maybe waiting for uh, your friend to arrive so that you can discuss the book you're going through or have a nice uh, lunch together or coffee together, and, but, and you can't help but overhear the people a few tables down who are having this conversation, and you can't help but get a little interested in it. But the problem is you can only hear one side of the conversation, and so against your, your, your better judgment, against your better etiquette, you're trying to listen in on this conversation, but you can only hear one side, and it's not quite making sense. It sounds interesting, but you're, it sounds odd, though, also, because you can't make sense of the conversation. Uh, the, there's a problem with only hearing one side of the conversation, and this is what we're doing in all of the New Testament uh, scripture. With all the letters in the New Testament, this is what we're doing. We're listening in on one side of the conversation. And so it makes it difficult for us to understand sometimes what it is Paul or Peter or the other New Testament authors are getting at. And this is the case in 1 Corinthians, but it's especially so here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Up to this point, Paul has been addressing other issues that he has become aware of through uh, reports from others, Chloe's people, who had brought reports to Paul about what had been going on in this Corinthian church. But it also seems to be the case that there is at least a group in Corinth who has sent questions or a list of issues to Paul, and in chapter 7 he begins answering these questions. He begins addressing these issues. So you see at the beginning of our passage now concerning the things about which you wrote. So now he's turning from addressing things that he had heard about to addressing things directly that they were interested in him addressing. And really this is, is kind of a side point, but it's important for us to consider this in our interpretation of, of all of Scripture, our interpretation of the New Testament letters, but also to biblical interpretation. It's not always a straightforward one-to-one correspondence application from their situation to our situation. Now, it also doesn't mean we throw things out the window because we don't like them and we say, well, this just this was the culture back then, therefore it doesn't directly apply to us. No, this is why we need a community of faith. This is why we need a church to read and understand the Bible. And this is why God has given us elders and teachers uh, so that we might learn uh, and or the right way of reading and understanding Scripture. So keep this in mind as we read and study this passage, that we're only getting one side of the conversation, and therefore we have to be nuanced and careful with how we understand this word. Follow along with me as I read our passage, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities each man is to have his own wife. And each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." 
But this I say by way of concession, not a command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? May God add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your concern for us, that you, you give us your word, that we might know how to live for your glory, even in, even in detail of how we might serve you in the ordinariness of life, in various circumstances. You've given us your word First, that we might see our sin and repent of it and see our salvation in Christ alone. You've given us your word that we might be saved, but you've also given it to us that we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we ask now that you would use your word and the preaching of it to work this in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Produce in us the fruit which pleases you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, an overriding theme throughout the whole letter of 1 Corinthians has been and will be, we'll, we'll see for the rest of this letter, this idea of living as God's church in an ungodly culture. Living as God's church in an ungodly culture. The Corinthians weren't doing such a, a good job of this. They were failing in many areas, and so Paul has already addressed their disunity, their, their divisions within the church, He says you need to be a united church in Christ in order to live in this ungodly culture. But he also has addressed this man that was caught in a serious sin. And and they tolerated it. They were okay with it. They had become in some ways um, like their culture. They had assimilated in some ways to their culture. They had lawsuits among believers. Paul addresses this in the previous chapters. They were judging uh, outsiders and tolerating sin in in their church. And then most recently, we saw that Paul addresses the sexual ethic of the Christian. That they were not to take their cues from the culture. This is for us too. We're not to take our cues from the culture. Rather, we are to take our cues, our moral cues from the Word of God. They had failed in many of these things. But Paul addressing these sexual ethics of the Christian leads him into addressing an issue that some of the Corinthians brought up. As we saw verse 7, what you wrote to me about. 
Now the overall theme, I think, of this passage, you know, there are various circumstances that Paul discusses in these 16 verses, but I think an overall theme is this, living for the glory of God in marriage or in singleness. How can I live for the glory of God in my marriage? How can I live for the glory of God as a person who is single? And he continues this theme throughout the rest of chapter 7. We'll see it again next week. In living for God's glory in, any, in all circumstances. No matter what you're facing, no matter what circumstance you're in, how can I live for God's glory? And you may uh, be coming to this passage and you think, well, this is not going to be very applicable to me. I am uh, a teenager, I'm a child, I'm a young person. Uh, how could this have any application for me? Well, first of all, we would say it clearly has direct application for, for those of us who are married. If we are married, we'll, we are going to find some uh, encouragement here, some direction here, some conviction here for our marriages, how we might live for God's glory in our marriage. But also, if you're single, there will be some clear and direct application here for you. How can I live for God's glory in the circumstance I am now? But even if you're not in those particular circumstances, you will find much here. Teenagers, you will find much here because, well, first of all, you are single now. But down the road, if you become married, you will know, you will have a sense of, an idea of how can I live for God's glory? Looking forward to that day when, when I am married. Or perhaps God has gifted you in some other way. Or you, uh, the third aspect we'll be looking at is those who are in mixed faith marriages, where an, a believer is married to an unbeliever. You say, well, I'm not in that circumstance. But you may know someone who is in that circumstance. And you'll be able to take this wisdom from 1 Corinthians in order to think about their marriage and how you can encourage them in the midst of that difficult situation. So I want to address three different situations and how we can live for the glory of God in these situations. The first is living in marriage for the glory of God. The second is living as a single person for the glory of God. And the third is living in a mixed faith marriage for the glory of God. So first, let's consider how can we live for God's glory in our marriage? In our marriages. See this in verses 1 through 6, and then also skip a few verses in verses 10 and 11. Now, it seems that there's a particular situation that Paul is addressing in this letter. We saw last week that there were a group of people who saw the body as unimportant. Remember this, this uh, aspect of what we saw last week? There's a group of people, they saw the body as unimportant, and this led them to licentiousness or liberty without any rules at all. We can do whatever we want because we're no longer, longer under law, but we're under grace. And this led them to tolerate sin, the serious sin of a, of a man having an intimate relationship with his mother-in-law. It led to them taking part in the practices of the day, the sexual immorality of the day. They would go to temple cults and be active in relationships with prostitutes. It was ridiculous. They were saying, no rules apply to us. But I also mentioned last week that having a a low view of the physical body can also lead us to asceticism. So that would be the opposite. Uh, Licentiousness would be saying, I can do whatever I want to because this body doesn't matter. Asceticism means I will not enjoy anything because this body is bad. 
and therefore to, to enjoy thing in the physical body, to enjoy any physical thing, would be less than spiritual. So it seems to be that there's also a group in this church that is becoming ascetic. So you have these dueling groups, the licentious group in Corinth, but also this ascetic group in Corinth. They, they viewed their bodies, they viewed sexual activity, even within marriage, with suspicion, as though this would somehow taint them or make, the, make them less spiritual in the eyes of God. And it reminds me, we have to be careful um, as a church and as believers with this, because sometimes we can fall into some of that, those same tendencies. We can tend to view the physical with suspicion, as though the physical is less than glorifying to God, as though you know the spiritual plane is really where it's at, but this physical body, these physical things, they don't really matter to God. Uh, and this applies specifically in our uh, our sexual ethics. You know, we need in in telling our children and our teenagers to avoid sexual immorality. We need to make sure we don't unwittingly make them think that sexual activity within marriage is a bad thing. Because it is a good gift from God, and, and we should see it as, as such. Uh, so we need to be careful that we don't view physical things always with suspicious. So someone who's on a diet, they might think that they can only eat stuff that tastes bad, right? Because anything that tastes good is going to necessarily be bad for you. Uh, so we might tend to think that way with those donut holes over there. And maybe you didn't touch those because you say, that tastes good, that's going to be really bad. But that's not true. They're really good in moderation. See, there are certain boundaries that you place over the good gifts of God so that you don't abuse these gifts of God. What was happening here, it appears, is that husbands and wives within the church at Corinth were abstaining from intimate relationship with one another because in doing so, they thought they were being more spiritual. And Paul says, no, this is not good. This is not more spiritual. This is a bad thing. Paul is addressing their concerns. Now, notice verse 1b. Uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, we need to understand who it is that's saying this. Some have taken this as Paul is saying this. We just... I really think brings out uh, a lot of problems in trying to understand the verse. Because then you have to go back to Genesis and say, well, what, what did God mean when he said, it's not good for man to be alone, let me make a wife for him, right? You'd have to uh, figure some things out. Now, you could probably make a, a, a good interpretation of it, but I think it's better for us to take this as Paul repeating back what they're what they're saying this is the issue they're bringing up they're saying it's better for a man even if he's married not to touch a woman it will be more spiritual if a man does not have intimate relationships with a woman and paul is correcting this view he's saying no this is not right this is what you're bringing up to me but because of immoralities especially in your situation corinthians because of your lack of self-control it is it is better that each man should have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Now here, Paul is not simply saying have a wife and have a husband. He's saying be intimately involved with, have a sexual relationship with. Um, and so Paul, in response to this wrong view that the Corinthians has, begins to lay out a biblical view of marriage for the Corinthians. Let me correct you here. Let me bring your thinking away from uh, your total rejection of 
the culture, you see that there is immorality here and therefore you're thinking that to abstain would be better. But let me correct your, your thinking. You see, sometimes we react so much against the culture that we try to make ourselves more spiritual than God is. We try to make ourselves more righteous somehow than the law of God. And that's equally wrong. That's, e- that's on the other side uh, of, of God's law rather than just indulging in everything. So let me show you how Paul lays out this biblical view of marriage. He points to its exclusivity, its mutuality, and to its lifelong stability. So notice Paul says this is to be an exclusive relationship. Exclusivity, verse 2. It should be between one man and one woman. And this is the context for sexual intimacy. And it should be enjoyed. You're not to abstain from this. Each man should have his wife. Each wife should have her husband. Sexual intimacy was to be enjoyed within this monogamous relationship. So he's, he's doing two things here. He's saying... Yes, you should, be, you should have an intimate relationship with your husbands and with your wives. But there should be no intimacy with temple prostitutes. And there should be no polygamy. And there should be no homosexuality. This is an exclusive relationship. This is how God has made the institution of marriage. And consider, consider how we might fail in this regard. How... Christians might fail in this regard with sexual immorality or, or with lust or with maybe, maybe not even in those aspects, but emotionally giving yourself to another outside of this relationship. Perhaps some sin by having an idealized picture of their spouse. I wish my spouse was more like this person or that person. But when we do that, we are, we are rejecting the exclusivity of this marriage relationship, this institution. And the culture looks at monogamous relationship, a marriage between one woman and one man, and says, that's just not practical. That won't work. Uh, we have desires. We have impulses. We, we have love, right? Just let me love who I want to love. And this really sounds like the Corinthians in some ways. Anything goes. The body was made for pleasure and pleasure was made for the body. Therefore, they would say it's wrong to have this exclusivity. But Paul says this is the biblical view of marriage. But also notice uh, mutuality in verses 3 through 5. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her body. Neither does the husband have authority over his body. Um, but the wife does. There's this mutuality, each for the other, in the context of marriage. And this would be uh, countercultural in Paul's day. This would have uh, sounded irrational. It would have been odd for Paul to say, the husband's body belongs to the wife. Because in marriage at that time, the wife existed for the man's pleasure. The, the, the wife existed for the husband's pleasure to do his will, to do what he wanted. So uh, another way of bringing the countercultural nature of this to our minds might, to think, might be for us to think about saying this to a traditionally Muslim husband and wife. To say to this Muslim woman and this Muslim man, look, your body belongs to your wife. 
And, and he would reject that. He would say, no, that is, her body belongs to me, but she exists for my pleasure. And Paul is saying, no, there's mutuality here. There, this is each for the other. You have mutual responsibilities and obligations to one another. But don't we typically tend to think of our own rights and privileges in the marriage relationship? Not only when it comes to intimacy, but in other areas of your life. Don't you often think first of your own rights and privileges and benefits and desires in your marriage relationship? Don't you struggle with this? Think about the last week or two. In what ways did you struggle because you had a certain desire or need or want and it was all about you and your rights and privileges? So... Here's, here's one way we, we're tempted to respond to the instructions Paul gives concerning marriage. We might be tempted to look on the responsibility Paul puts on our spouse and say, you're not doing your job. You ought to be doing better at this. Or even think about uh, Paul's instructions in Ephesians chapter 5. A man might be tempted to say to his wife, Paul says to submit to me and you're not submitting like you ought to. And therefore, you really need to, to do a better job. Or the wife might say to the husband, look, Paul says you're supposed to sacrifice yourself for me just like Christ did for the church. And you're not doing it. You're not giving yourself for me. But doesn't this turn Paul's instructions on their head? It, it totally upends his instructions to us. By doing this, you're actually doing the exact, exact opposite of what Paul's commanding. You're seeking your own privileges, your own benefit, your own desires, instead of those of your spouse. This is like two uh, wheels of a train. I don't think you call them wheels, but consider it's like two wheels of a train. If one of these wheels gets off of track, you have a train wreck in the making. And our tendency is for our eyes to wander off of our responsibility, off of our wheel, and try to make sure the other wheel is doing its job. And as soon as you take your eyes off of your wheel and wander for too long over here, you're lost. Your wheel's going to go off track. You're going to mess up. Rather, Paul says, husband, pay attention to your responsibility of giving yourself to your wives. And wives, pay close attention. Be careful in all aspects of your wife to make sure that you are giving yourself to your husbands. Do not neglect attention to your own responsibilities so apply this to yourselves how are you doing in this how are you doing in this in regards to giving yourself to your spouse in giving intimacy or emotional health really being a listening ear for your husband or your wife really being sensitive to their needs You know, I can think about how often we can become so sensitive to our own needs. So sensitive and attentive to our our own wants and desires that we become oblivious to the desires and needs and wants of our loved ones. This applies to other relationships as well. Consider when you're on a long trip and you really have to use the bathroom. You can be sure that you're going to stop pretty soon if you have to use the restroom. But if one of the other members of your family has to, you, you might consider, well, they don't really have to go that bad. We, you can hold it for 10, just 15 more minutes. Just hold it. But if it's you, you're not holding it. You're pulling off the next chance you get. 
or if, if you're hungry, right? Or, or, or if you're in pain, you are well acquainted with your own pain. You are attentive to your own pain. But if a, someone else in your family has pain, you might consider, well, their pain threshold is a little bit lower than mine, so I know it's really not as bad as they're making it out to be. But, but Paul says we are to give ourselves, we are to be attentive to the needs of others, especially loved ones in our families. We ought to be more attentive to the needs of others than our own needs. We ought to be more sensitive. I fail in this so often. More sensitive to the needs of others in your family than you are your own needs. Now contrast this with Christ's sacrificial love for us. How we respond and yet how Christ in his marriage to the church has given himself and gives himself for the sake of the church. You know, he forsook his own needs for our needs. He forsook the, an, attentive, an attentiveness to his own pain for our sake. He was more attuned to the pain that we would endure and suffering in hell than he was suffering in his own hell as he suffered under the wrath of God on the cross. He did this for us. And note how we cling to our lives with everything that we've got. We want to live a long time. We want to live well into our 80s and 90s. We want one more day when our time comes. We want one more meal, one more hour. Just give me a little bit more of my life. Just give me one more breath. And Jesus says, I willingly give it all away for you. Willingly. I sacrifice myself. His self-giving love. His sacrifice for our sins. Even when we were in the midst of our sins, the scripture says, Christ looked upon you, a desperate sinner, Christian, and said, I will give my life for her. Jesus has given his life for you, brothers and sisters, willingly, knowing you at your worst. And he took the punishment for your worst, that you might have life. And this is the kind of mutuality. This is the kind of sacrifice that we are to give to one another. But you cannot do that until you first experience and receive the work of Christ's giving of himself for you. Until you repent of your sins, turn away from your own selfishness and cling in faith to Christ and his selflessness, you can't even begin to give sacrificially to your husband or to your wife. See, when you repent and trust in Jesus, it's not just that he served in as, as an example. He actually paid the price for our sins, and now he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell you, which produces fruit like that of Jesus, produces fruit of self-giving love. He's producing fruit in you of sacrifice so that now you'll be able to, to love your spouse in a way that glorifies God with this mutual self-giving love. So Paul says the relationship is exclusive, it's mutual, 
He does give an exception here. Abstain for a time of mutual agreement for the sake of prayer. Now this is a concession, it seems. This is one of the areas where it would be really helpful to see what Paul is talking about exactly. Like what is he addressing in particular with the Corinthians that he says, abstain for a little while for a time of prayer. It's almost like this is Paul's church growth strategy. Don't abstain for too long. Keep the intimacy alive in your marriage. Keep it growing, except if you need to take uh, some time for prayer, if you need to abstain for a time, then do so for prayer, but come back together quickly because of your lack of self-control. Again, we get into trouble when we try to become more righteous than God. They might have been thinking, well, if coming apart for a time is good for our prayers, well, why not just do that indefinitely? And we'll be really on a high spiritual plane. And Paul says, no, that is not good. That is not the right way to go about this. A good thing is not always better if you have more of it. A man will be content to have a a nice fire, crackling fire in his fireplace, but if it spreads throughout his living room and kitchen, it's no good. So Paul says, abstain for a time for prayer, but come together quickly. And then third, he says, this marriage relationship is characterized by lifelong stability, verses 10 and 11. So Paul has a parenthesis here where he talks about... uh, the single life, but then he comes back to marriage in verses 10 and 11. He says, not I, but the Lord. He's not giving a full teaching here. Rather, Paul is referring the Corinthians back to the teaching of Jesus, where he teaches about lifelong marriage. He, Jesus does give the exception for divorce in the cases of uh, sexual immorality and adultery. And yet, the, the, that's not why Marriage was created, or how it was created. It was created, one man, one woman, for a lifetime of love. So how do we live for God's glory in marriage? We live for God's glory as we pay close attention to being exclusive to our spouses, to being mutual with one another in our self-giving love, and by living together in lifelong stability. And now Paul gets back to the parentheses. How do I live as a single person for the glory of God? Verses 7 through 9. Paul does express his preference for singleness. I wish that all men were even as I myself. Paul, we may think, was, was single. Or perhaps he was widowed and now single. Not really sure. But it's clear that he, he has a preference that others might be single as he was. Why? Because he saw certain advantages to the single life. There are certain advantages for the single life. Now, we may be tempted to think first of fleshly advantages. Well, I can go to bed when I want to. I can go to the restaurant that I want to go to without anybody infringing on my desires. You might have other, other ideas of advantages where you can go out whenever you want to. You know, there are certain fleshly advantages, but there are also spiritual advantages that Paul recognizes to being single. And he lays these out in the rest of chapter 7. We'll get to more of those. But there are certain advantages, Paul says, for, for being single. And therefore, he has this preference for singleness. And at this point, it's important that we say singleness is not a spiritual deficiency. You are not spiritually deficient because you are single. Note, note Paul's singleness. Would we say that Paul is spiritually deficient in some way? Or note even, even more, Jesus' singleness. He was never married. 
He lived in his entire life as a single person, and none of us would say that he was spiritually deficient in any way. He was the, the quintessential uh, meaning of what it means to be a human living for the glory of God. So Christian singleness is neither spiritually deficient nor spiritually superior. And we should be careful in, in our churches to make sure we don't somehow signal that singleness is less than less than spiritual and that a single person is not able to give glory to God as much as, say, a, a married person. But Paul says, no, God has different, given different gifts to different people. So what he says, verse 7, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and one in another. So he says, if it is your gift, remain single. And you say, well, I don't want this gift, as some might say. Well, even John Calvin says, there must be in this matter no determination for tomorrow. Right? In other words, as, as you would point to other teachings of Jesus, tomorrow has enough cares of its own for you to be concerned about what will happen in the future. Rather live for this day, for the glory of God, in the situation you are now in. In other words, take advantage of your current situation, of your current singleness. And if you are single today, it's because God is gifting you in some way right here. I'm not saying for the rest of your life, though that may be, but God is gifting you right now so that you can give glory to him in a certain way that you could not give glory to him if you were married. Take advantage of your current situation. And and you can probably think of advantages to the single life or your spirituality better than I can. But just off the top of my head, I'm thinking quiet mornings, right? I've got little kids, and the mornings aren't always quiet and calm and relaxed. But consider the the time that you have alone that can be invested in your relationship with God. You have an advantage over some people. Now you have other responsibilities as well with other family members. But consider those other advantages, quiet mornings and evenings. You, get, you do get to set your own agenda in some ways. You have other responsibilities. But it might be appropriate and helpful for you to consider, to take time out and, and make a list and consider, what are some advantages that I have right now in this situation that I can leverage in my relationship with God, that I can leverage in my ability to serve other people in the church, and my ability to, to serve my neighbors, my ability to, to serve in a way that I couldn't do if I was married? How can I leverage this for the glory of God? You can live for the glory of God without being a husband, a wife, Etc. And don't let the church or our culture tell you otherwise. Live for God's glory in your situation. And if that changes, fine. But Paul says, remain if, as if, you're, if it's your gift. Marry if it's not your gift. So it seems like this is, Paul maybe had an example of mind, a man and a woman in a relationship, but they were maybe thinking marriage would be less than spiritual if they engaged in that. And Paul's saying, no, it's better for you to come together in marriage rather than to burn. There's a pastoral sensitivity in Paul's instructions here. And 
note that this is the same pastoral sensitivity that Jason and I want to have in our counseling situations in the church. If you come to us for advice or counseling and, and we give you several options and say, well, this might be glorifying to God or this might be glorifying to God, rather than just giving you a straightforward answer, we're just trying to follow the, the example of Paul here. He gives several different situations in which it might be appropriate for you to do different things. He doesn't want to bind their consciousness. Rather, he wants to guide them as a shepherd. So how do we live for God's glory and singleness? With a single-minded pursuit for the glory of God. A single-mindedness. Not that you're, you're focused in on, as so many in our culture are, I need to find a spouse. And that consumes all of your desires and your thoughts and your plans and everything that's going through your mind when what ought to occupy our mind is, let me pursue Christ with everything that I've got. And this applies to married folks as well, right, doesn't it? We recognize we do have responsibilities to our wives we wouldn't have otherwise. And yet we are all to pursue with one mind Jesus Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to worry about them. Pursue Christ. Let me move to our, our third point. How do you live for the glory of God in mixed faith marriages? Verses 12 to 16. Paul says, not I, but the, not the Lord, but I. Now he's not saying this is uninspired. This is, this is still scripture here. But he's saying this isn't a, a teaching that Jesus explicitly made about living in mixed marriages. So the situation seems to have been believers wanting to leave unbelieving spouses because they thought if it is, um, if it is spiritually unholy to unite ourselves with temple prostitutes, maybe it's also will taint us if we unite ourselves to unbelieving spouses. Maybe this is tainting me. It's an unholy bond maybe. Maybe we're not to associate with unbelievers and therefore to have an unbelieving spouse would be wrong. But Paul says if the unbelievers content to stay, the believers should not initiate it. And the reasoning he gives is interesting. For the spouse is sanctified and the children are sanctified. The spouse is sanctified and the children are made holy. And we might think, well, how is the spouse sanctified by the believing Husband or the believing wife? How are the children made holy by the believing spouse? And we might hear from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, well, that means they're, it's because they're in the covenant family. The children are a part of the covenant of God. And here I would make a slight distinction here. I think that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters are on to something in saying that our children are a part of the covenant family. But it's more like they are, they are exposed to, to regularly the preaching of the word of God. They are exposed to the things of the covenant. They are exposed to to the things of God day in and day out. And so I don't think it's, it's necessarily right for us to treat our children in the church as simply rebellious pagans, but neither do I think it's right for us to consider them as in the covenant. Rather, they are blessed because of our presence. They are, they are blessed as you maybe drag them to church week in and week out. They are hearing the gospel. They are hearing the word of God. They are, they are tasting the things of the age to come. So this is, this is a time where we reattune our minds and our hearts to the things that are real. 
or really a, a term that is often used today is fake news, right? Well, Monday through Saturday, you are hearing fake news every single day. The world is feeding you fake news about who you are. It's feeding you fake news about what this world is and, and why you exist and what we are doing here. It is here on Sunday mornings as we gather with the saints, you are hearing real news. And it is good news of a Savior who bled and died for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, your children are hearing this good news that is real week in and week out. And they are blessed because of you. Even if you are, even if your spouse is an unbeliever, your children are blessed. They are being sanctified in some sort of way by your presence. Now Paul says, if an unbeliever leaves, the believer is free. They're not in bondage. And the reason he gives for that is, there's no guarantee you'll save your spouse by your life and witness in staying. So he he gives the two uh, possibilities of this. First, there is a sanctifying presence that you have with your unbelieving spouse. But if he wants to leave, there's nothing you can do about it. And you, you shouldn't feel guilty about it because there's no way of knowing whether your presence would have saved him or not. You know, and this points back to our work in salvation and God's work in salvation. God's work in salvation is the definitive act. He is sovereign in salvation. See, salvation, your salvation is not dependent ultimately upon you and what you do. Wouldn't that be a terrifying thought? If salvation was dependent upon me and what I do and my, you know, how I'm feeling at the moment. But thankfully it's not. Our salvation is dependent fully upon God and His work for us. All of it. It is a gift of grace. Jesus says, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Jesus has said, of all that my Father gives me, I will lose nothing. And I will raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hands. And the Father is greater than all, he says, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. A strong man, a man with with strong hands, might be able to, to hold the arm of his son and keep him from being washed away by a heavy, big wave. But if you get a big enough wave, the strongest of men will still lose their grip. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus will never let go of you. Never. And this is our salvation. This is our hope. This is our joy. That even the weakness of our faith sometimes will not keep us from falling away from Jesus because he holds us in his hands. Let us pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. It it is so practical and helpful. And it it is goodness and life to us. Not because there is is life in the law, but because there is life in Jesus Christ. And he has given it to us. 
fully and freely, and he will never take it away. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters in this room who are in different situations with marriage and singleness and perhaps mixed faith marriages, and we pray that you'd give us wisdom and the grace that we need to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.